Roop is an extremely efficient competitor. There's no loss of motion. And uh, Jackson that time was one step ahead of him. Jackson closes in on him now. Jackson using that speed to his own advantage and not punishing that left arm of Bob Roop. And it was Jackson trying a cross body block. Roop paralleled his body and as he did, Jackson uh, bit the canvas. And it's Roop setting him for the show. Ooh, brother. A shoulder breaker into a uh, forward slam. Cerebral and a physical match. And welcome back to another edition of the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop, going to join us here in just a few minutes. And of course, as always, I am your co-host, Ray Russell, along for the ride. And what great feedback we got from everyone last week as we kicked off a three or four show series on Bob's time in the San Francisco territory circa 1977. Of course, Bob enters as a wrestler, but quickly becomes the booker. Last week, we focused on the promoter, Roy Shire, and some of the other things that went into Bob becoming the Booker of the San Francisco Territory. Well, this week, we're going to look how Bob turned things around, a territory that wasn't doing so well when he arrived. Bob going to flip the script and bring up the houses by nearly 100% in just a couple months' time. We'll be touching on names like the High Chief Peter Maivia, Rowdy Roddy Piper, the infamous ukulele angle. No, not that one. Not the one up in the WWWF. But the original angle, the one that inspired Peter Maivia to take it and run with it up in New York against superstar Billy Graham. And of course, this week, we're going to begin talking about the infamous six-month-long feud that drew people back to the Cow Palace month after month. I'm talking about Kevin Sullivan versus Bob Roop. Now, we're going to be discussing all of that and more in just a couple minutes' time. But before we get going, just a friendly reminder that you guys can listen to The Wrestling Stoop with Bob Roop as well as our sister shows, like the Wrestling Memory Grenade, currently in the year of 1988 in the World Wrestling Federation, over there on the Grenade. You can also listen to the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories, guaranteed 100% territory talk each and every time out on the show. Got three projects now up and running over there on Regional Wrestling, including 1981 in Georgia Championship Wrestling with Jamie Ward, Bill Watts' UWF in 86 with guest co-host Roman Gomez, and just this week, dropped the very first episode of Memphis 1985. Yes, the CWA, Jarrett Promotions, in 1985 as we set the stage with guest co-host Steve Crawford. Go check that one out right now. And you guys can listen to all of those shows and more as part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network located over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and anywhere your podcast streaming needs are met. From Apple to Spotify, Google, and beyond. And hey, guys, don't forget, you can find Bob over on Facebook.com slash poor Bob Roop. Be sure to friend him. Say hello. He's looking forward to hearing from you. 
as am I. Yes, guys, you can follow me, Ray Russell, and the WrestleCopia Podcast Network on social media as well. You can follow me on X, formerly Twitter. You can follow me there at Rasslin Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I in Grenade also. Follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Rasslin Grenade, as I'm constantly adding old school video clips and pictures from throughout wrestling history. And of course, it's also the best way to keep up with the latest goings on here at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. And hey, while you're at it, make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channel, guys. YouTube.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And of course, now would be a tremendous time to become a WrestleCopia patron. And you guys know by now I'm talking about that $5 all-access tier. Get you all sorts of gifts for just 5 bucks, including all of my insanely detailed book-like show notes for the Wrestling Memory Grenade, Regional Wrestling, and the Monday Warfare podcast as well. Plus, you'll get early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia, where you can listen days and sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. For instance... The current edition of Regional Wrestling that just dropped with Steve Crawford, you could have listened to that on Patreon six days early. And the episode dropping next week with Roman Gomez covering more UWF action, you can listen to that right now, dropping one week early. So yes, you get the show notes, the early access, but you also get things like random bonus video drops, remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade Show, and that's still not all, because you're going to get digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure, and of course, that Patreon-exclusive watch-along series covering many past WWF and WCW events. And guys, you get all of that for the low, low price. Unbelievable. Of just $5. No subscription. Cancel anytime. Show your support. Give it a try for a month. I think you'll like the content that I offer. And every penny of it goes right back here into paying the bills to keep the WrestleCopia Podcast Network up and running for the months and the years to come. And all right, with all of that said and out of the way, you know what time it is. Time to jump back into the show. Last week, such a success. Can't wait to continue on our journey through San Francisco 1977 with the man himself. Let's welcome him back one more time, talking about the host of the show, Mr. Bob Roop. Bob, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, Ray. It's good to be back. Looking forward to sharing some more action history with uh, folks out there. Yeah, and I know it's we're only like five shows deep, six shows deep now into the show, but we got quite a bit of uh, excellent feedback after that last episode. People really loving that uh, deep dive into the San Francisco territory. Not a lot of people, you know, get into that, especially not in the podcasting world. And they love the insight of you know Roy Shire as well as the San Francisco territory itself. How you got the book? You know, that's not that story's not really out there either. Now the story about Patterson and the perjury and stuff, all that was out there, but you almost about to give your notice when he's like. Hey, how would you like to be the booker? Oh, okay. This didn't go exactly how I thought, but here we are. That's where we are right now. Yeah. His uh, his uh, offer was a little less little less uh, lengthy. It was like, I believe he said, you want the book. I believe that's <laughs> how he said it. You want the book. Uh, and that was like, that was Roy being warm. Actually give me three or four words at a time. But yeah, that's the way it went. And, uh, you know, it was an auspicious start, but uh we did talk a little bit of last week. He he didn't really expect me to be a, a fully functioning booker in the sense of how it's normally seen in a territory. He he was uh, expecting me just to be his yes man carrying his ideas, right? Which uh, were as we said last time, they were redundant. I mean, to the point of just blatant expose. You'd go out there and do things that people already knew you were going to do. No wonder there was anybody in the arena. I had a full playing field 
to work on when I started. That was one of the benefits of that. He had run it into the ground by, I mean, if, if it's not a blatant expose to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, what else could it be? So, right. so normally we exchange pleasantries and have a little good time, 10, 15 minutes, first part of the show, but we've got so much to fit in, guys. We're going to get right into things. We're going to kick off part two of 1977 in the San Francisco Territory. Now, Bob, you start basically at the beginning of the year, and you're there all the way to the end of the year. So really, we're not just breaking down your time there, but we're breaking down an entire year in the San Francisco Territory itself, which is cool. I'm sure a lot of people enjoy that as well. So just a brief recap as we get things going here with part two, guys. Last time out, we talked about Bob's arrival in the Bay Area, the poor drawing houses when you got there, Bob, replacing Pat Patterson's spot as the Booker of the Territory, the situation between Pat and Roy Shire, wanting him to perjure himself in court, some of the other firsthand experiences dealing with Shire that you had, as well as other various sources we heard stories from, uh, from direct quotes. Bob shared a funny story about Roy pitching a fit after that $14 bottom shelf piece of wood <laughs> broke during uh, uh, its first use in the ring. We also heard some stories shared from, I'd say, co-promoters and others in the know, perhaps Shire taking some additional money from the box office. We won't get into all of that again, but it's just a lot of people telling a lot of stories about Roy Shire. We're going to hear a few more here this week from direct quotes from other people as well. So continue to form your own opinion about the, the man, uh, Roy Shire. But we also talked about Al Madrill's ultimatum that saw him either quit or get fired, depending probably on who you ask. Uh, we heard a Pepper Gomez story, but overall, part one was all about you, Bob, acquiring the book and really just a deep dive look into Roy Shire. And wow, what an amazing reception that episode received. But now, guys, we look at your time, Bob, booking and wrestling in the San Francisco territory here this week, and I can't wait. Well, me either. That sounds great. That's a nice, uh, that's a good setup there. Ray, I think that the deck is cleared. You know, full steam ahead. Uh, here we go. So it's another, uh, an entirely different part to the story here in 77. And I want to thank Jeff Sharkey for sending in a collective list of Bob's results, his career retrospective, a lot of results of your career, Bob. I was actually able to better pinpoint when you arrived in San Francisco, thanks to Mr. Jeff Sharkey, because based on what I could initially find, I had guessed that your debut was somewhere around the end of February, maybe the very beginning of March, but looks like you finish up in Florida around January 29th of 77, and the first result that is now found, once again, thanks to Jeff, was February 12th at the Cow Palace in San Francisco. Uh, you score a win over the veteran Rick Hunter. I don't know if you remember Rick Hunter. Vaguely. I, I know the name. He uh, Didn't he work in Florida under a mask? Yeah, the Gladiator, uh, I believe. Gladiator, and he was uh, over like a million dollars and on working on top and making good money. As it, When I broke in back in 69, he had just been let go uh, because they wanted to take the mask off in a match and uh, he didn't want to do it. He thought it would kill his gimmick and they ended up firing him. And I never heard of him. Uh, you know, again, we're talking about a long time ago. My, my memory is fine, but with people only worked with one time. Sure. The idea that I would remember him is, you know, cause you run across so many, oh, I can only imagine you know, I mean, thousands of people. You, you run across. <laughs> well, when you travel the world, like I did, you know, yeah. you're not only that you're working with foreign wrestlers and, Russia's from all kinds of different countries. So uh, bear with me out there. I don't remember. Ray has done a great job of getting so doing research into history. My memory files don't work as well, although they're okay. Uh, they, they're, they've been proven to be pretty damn good at this point. 
So. Well, it's been, it's been a long time. I know going back to school and studying on how to be a special ed teacher, or they did a section on how they believe memory works. And they believe that we have, just like files in a, a filing cabinet, we have files in our memory that uh, similar memories will go into. Now, over a lifetime, you might you might have a, millions of files in your head, and sometimes it's you you have to start you have to sort through those, and although sure. you, you can sure. you can do them, you can't do them quite as fast as a computer. Some of them might get misplaced once in a while, where you can't access them right away. But um, anyway, I'm doing the best I can, and I think we'll be okay. I think we've I think you've been doing a fantastic job uh, up to this point with with a lot of the names I've thrown at you, a lot more obscure than Rick Hunter, and again. I think he was gone by the, you know, like right when you got there. So it wasn't somebody you were in contact with quite a bit. For those curious, Rick Hunter had a long career specifically on the West Coast, but he actually finished up as a ring crew, dri- like a driver. He drove the ring around for the WWF in the mid to late 80s. He actually worked uh, as an enhancement talent there, a job guy on the prelims. Uh, squash matches almost bi-weekly. You would see him on the TV. And he was up there in age by that point, yes. But, hey, he, brought the, you know, he, was, he came cheap. He brought the ring. And uh, he worked as the gladiator, and he also worked as himself, Rick Tunner, quite a bit. So he did a lot of jobs there in the late 80s. So he was on TV quite a bit for the WWF. So if anybody heard that name and they're a big fan of the old school Hogan era, yes, same guy. That's who we're talking about just many years later. (laughs) But, uh, Bob, you initially arrived strictly here in San Francisco as an in-ring talent. And you work, of all people, very early on as, as you get here, the high chief, Peter Maivia the grandfather of the rock guys. And in one of your very first matches in San Francisco, you're stuck in there with Peter Maivia, a big name out there. Now you had actually teamed. I did a lot of research here, guys. So Bob, you had actually teamed with Maivia way back in 1972 in Australia as well. I don't know if you remember that or not, but do you recall meeting uh, Peter Maivia on any occasion uh, during your career? Uh, Yes, I do. In fact, you're very specifically. It was while in Australia. Uh, I was booked into uh, New Zealand, and I went to, I didn't know against who, and I went to, I don't remember if it was Wellington or Huntington, but went to the arena, and I was booked against Peter, and uh, we were both in the same dressing room, and he was just, I mean, this guy was a class act. He was, uh, this guy is a seriously, seriously tough dude. I mean, forget about my being an Olympian. He didn't care about that. But he was the nicest guy in the world, you know. And, and I mean, I, I wasn't afraid of him because I didn't. I wasn't going to pose any menace to him. I mean, he didn't have to worry about me. You know, we're there to to work, you know, to right. have a match and as colleagues. So I, I never had an attitude of ever wanting to push me. In fact, I fought against it. I didn't. I never would shoot with a guy in the ring or, or grab a hold and not let a guy go or something like that because we had the mantra of the uh, telegram, telephone, tele-rustler that uh, if you if something that happened in Australia uh, last night would be just being discussed in the Dallas dressing room this evening, you know, because the, the guys talk on the phone now with text, by God. But that was before cell phones. So, sure. But everybody knew what was going on. Wrestlers loved the gossip. And there was, there was always guys want to be able to tell stories and embellish it like it's their own story, even though they had nothing to do with it. Right. They happen to be the one who knows the story and can share it with everybody else. Makes them kind of the star of the moment. But, yeah, I didn't want, I didn't want any word getting around anywhere that uh, I was stiff. 
Anyway, I didn't want to scare anybody. Let's put it that way. So I've been over backwards not to. So when I met with Peter, and again, I wasn't afraid of him either, because first of all, I had my antenna out all the time uh, by that time. And your Peter feelers, you're talking across. about, like, kind of get, get an idea of what, who, what you're yes. dealing with. I got you. But being able to pick up, I mean, if you're a heel wrestler and you aren't tuned in to what the audience is, is where they're at emotionally, uh, you, you're, <laughs> you're in the wrong business, pal. You're, yeah. you know, you, you sign your own death warrant there if you don't know uh, what's going on out there. Because, because, you know, I don't want you to go out and have a riot. <laughs> a, a, like we talked about it last time. All riots do is bring on lawsuits. They cost you, they're bad for business. They're right. horrible for business. With, back to Peter. What was funny was I was green as grass, and they wanted us to go 30 minutes. They didn't want to beat either one of us, so they wanted to have us go 30 minutes. Uh, through the time limit, uh, and a lot of lot of uh, Polynesians and in ethnic background, and so yeah, yeah, exactly. And there was a there was a Malang, there was a, a mixture of, of there were Samoans and and uh, Hawaiians and different people sure. in, in New Zealand that would come to the matches for Peter. And uh, we were going to do thirty minutes, and I, so I'm supposed to be the heel. So uh, I go up to Peter and I go, you know. <laughs> I'm back to, again, being green. I'm back to, uh, let's see, I've got about well, four, and I've worked it up now. I've got about four and a half minutes of material, you know, high spots and get this hole and all that. So let me say 30 minutes, but divided by four and a half. Oh, I only have to do it seven, about six and a half to seven times, <laughs> and we can get through the math. <laughs> so I went up to Peter, and I started telling him, I, I said, Peter, uh, listen, uh, I, why don't we, I got this, we'll do this, this. He listened for about, uh, oh, I don't know, 30 seconds, a minute, and his smile got bigger and bigger. <laughs> he reached out, he patted me on the arm, and he says, he said, don't, don't worry, brother. He said, just come on out there. We'll get through it. We'll call it in the ring. <laughs> we, oh, we went out there, and I'll tell you, 30 minutes would like, because all I had to do was follow him around. I mean, he would, uh, you know, I mean, he didn't have to tell me to do anything. He would just put himself, if he he put himself close enough and left his arms down, he was telling me to get a headlock, you know. But Peter was, was a great showman. You remember he had those great tattoos all over his oh, front yeah. and his back. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. you know, he was like a, a walking arts, art gallery all by himself. And, you know, just, just watching him, that was a guy that you really didn't want to take off your feet for a long time. You know, maybe briefly, you know, to get some heat on somehow. We down long enough to put the boots to him or whatever. But, um, you know, you, you prefer to keep him upright. You can you can do holds where he's upright. You can have him by the arm and whatever. And maybe he's on one knee, but he's still, you know, he's basically up and down rather than laying flat. And you can see both sides of him. So you can see that, that build, that body, that texture, that color, right. that mm -hmm. racial makeup, that hair, the, the, the warrior's face. Yeah, you can see all that. You know, he was a striking, uh, very striking character. So, well, it's good yeah, to know that, that like, was from, uh, from the time you met him. Is well, you weren't a rookie, but still fairly green and into the business. Uh, you know, in '72, and even here in '77, you know, you, you have nothing negative to say about him. He was just a good guy that knew his craft and was easy to work with. You had a good match with him, or or more than one. And uh, it's it's cool to hear. You know, you hear about these legends. Some of them don't live up to the hype as far as being a human being, but it's good to know that, you know, Peter Maivia was one of those good guys. Oh, Peter was, <laughs> uh, Peter was uh, the genuine article. If I wanted people to have on my side, mm -hmm. I would rather have Peter Maivia than three, any three other, other people, <laughs> I, you know, well, no, there's a few, 
but pretty normal, normal type. I, say. I get what you're I'd saying. rather have him than Lex Luger, John Studd, and, well, not Andre, but uh, but three big guys. I'd rather have Peter uh, because uh, Peter uh, is from a long line of warriors yes. and uh, certain tendencies. And to get into warrior mode, most uh, people who are not raised and don't have that kind of heritage don't have even have the ability to do that. Our mode is fight or flight. And, you know, fight is usually defensive. Flight, of course, is running for your life. Well, I don't know if they even have that one. <laughs> they don't have both. I don't think they have the flight part. <laughs> they definitely got the fight part. Yeah. But, uh, but no, I was, I was, uh, I, that's a great memory because I didn't know Peter was, his whole career, you know, his, his relatives, his sons, his children, his, are we're going to turn out to be so instrumental, you know, such a right. significant part of our of wrestling history. Sure. So looking back now, that was really that was really a privilege. Yeah, it was to be able to work with Peter in a single match. Now that's that's a cool story. I'm glad you know you had those memories in, in your memory bank there because it's uh, always awesome when we hear stories about guys who have transcended not just their generation but beyond. Thanks to you know, obviously Rocky Johnson marrying into the family, but also The Rock comes up from there. And then all the, the entire Samoan dynasty in general, really, because who knew? Like you said, so many guys, you know, came out of that, that extended family there out of Samoa. But um, we'll, we'll, we'll keep going on here, guys. We'll come back to that. I'd like to talk a little bit more about, you know, your maybe some of the other guys you crossed from the Samoan uh, dynasty or, you know, down the road. But uh, we're going to keep on trucking here in San Francisco right now. I'm going to read over a couple of lines here and we'll get some more feedback from you, Bob. I wrote, uh, after arriving before too long in the territory, you start teaming with Alexis Smirnoff. You win the tag team titles from Pat Patterson and Pepper Gomez, and you're working quite a bit for a few months versus Pepper Gomez and Al Madrill. Actually, you start working against Madrill. You and Madrill one on one for a little bit there in March, with very, and then Madrill starts bringing in partners Patterson, Chavo Guerrero. But by April and all the way through June, it seems to be you and Alexis Smirnoff married to Pepper Gomez and Al Madrill almost for about ninety days here. Uh, so you have about a three month long feud. I don't want to know if I want to call it a feud, but you guys are wrestling constantly there. Uh, you and the, uh, Hispanic duo for basically most of the summer or half of the summer. We did. I didn't know who was over in terms of drawing money. Right. Because when I took over the book, uh, Pepper had been there forever and Al had been there. I, I never even asked him how long he'd been there. But before I started book being the booker, I, I didn't not watch uh, matches, but I didn't watch every match because uh, I didn't need to. And, you know, I mean, it didn't really, I would go out and watch the one before the match before mine to see what they did to make sure that I wasn't going to repeat anything that people had done. For example, if they, in their match, when a lot of guys did this without being told like I did when I had my guys, when I was running things, uh, if I was going to have people running around the ring in the main event, getting out of the ring and doing something out in the, on the floor, I would make sure the other matches didn't go out there. You don't go out. Don't leave the ring. Don't go out and mess around on the floor because we're going to do that in the main event. I want it to be fresh. I want it to be, like, different. Right. Uh, because if they've seen it in every match, the guy goes out and they fight on the floor and get pickup chairs and all that crap. And I, don't, I couldn't believe uh, some of the stuff I saw when I did start watching that was uh, had been allowed to go on, and it was it was uh, and again it was people in the first match doing things that even the the, the main event match didn't do unless it's a special match, jumping out of the ring and grabbing chairs and that kind of stuff, 
you're doing it once uh, in a in a show is enough, but to do it four or five times, so you you know you might you should not, you shouldn't do it again for six months, but in that building. But once I started booking, I started watching the matches, and I didn't see anybody. And now our houses started getting better, but not right away. But I didn't see anybody that I felt like was really over. I mean, there was no nobody. It wasn't like in his heyday, Junkyard Dog and Dusty Rhodes, you know, Dusty was as hot in Florida as, as anybody I ever saw there. Right. When, they, when they'd go to the ring, I mean, there would definitely be a, you know, people, you know, part of it was, uh, you know, was uh, the person having, you know, connected with them. And the other thing was expectations that they were going to see whatever bad guy, you know, deserved to get his lumps was going to be getting them. And that's one thing you could count on Dusty and Junkyard Dog to do. I'd be watching the matches to see who had that kind of a, an attraction to a crowd from either way, whether it was uh, behind them or against them. And I didn't really see it. Now, again, the, the houses weren't that great. But, uh, you know, I started changing things on TV and uh, putting some new faces out there and yep. uh, gradually, gradually. And, we, you know, again, just by changing, even with the same people, I guarantee you those matches that we did with uh, Smirnoff and myself against Madrill and uh, Gomez, we we didn't do anything similar to what they had done before. We do completely different. Right. We might, you know, the first fall was always, oh, say, let's say just for argument, say the first fall has always been a DQ. Well, I go on the first fall, maybe go 15 minutes through. You know, it's 15 minute time or 20, whatever. Go through through 20 minutes. There'd be no winner or have them or the heels win the first fall in like 45 seconds. Oh, wow. And, yeah, that would that would definitely throw everybody off. Whoa, something, something uh, different's uh, going on here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember the I remember the first time we did it. I think it was Sacramento. Uh, we were walking back. We had, I don't remember what we did. We did something where we cheated, of course, to do it. But we ended up getting a fall on one of, uh, one of our opposition. And we're walking, you went back to the dressing room between falls. So we're on our way back to the dressing room, and here comes a half dozen people from the concession stand with hot dogs and Cokes you know, who had gone out after the first match started, or, or they knew it was starting, they were still out there. So they're coming in like two minutes into the match and seeing us leaving, and they're going, what, what the hell happened here? Yeah. You know, yeah. you guys are supposed to go at least 15 minutes. That's <laughs> That's what they've been doing for five years now. So, yeah, we, I had fun with it. So you worked with them quite a bit for, like I said, April through June. We already know what happens to Madrill by the end of June. You, he kind of gives you an ultimatum, and you, you give him, well, you don't really give him an ultimatum back. You said, hey, you, you basically gave me your own notice there. So Madrill departs, but as Al Madrill exits the territory, a new foe is on his way in, a guy by the name of Kevin Sullivan, Bob and We'll get in depth about that here in just a little bit. We're gonna see. We're gonna put Kevin on the back burner just for a little bit. Get a little bit of some of the other stuff out of the way here before we get into the good stuff. But but first, we're gonna take a look at the size of the houses. I talked about that last episode. I said we'd mention it here this week. As you have now taken over the book and some of the feuds and talents that help bring in the gate, uh, they, they back it up substantially here. You, some of the other talent you're bringing in, some of the talent that may have still been there, and certainly the change in the booking. And let's be clear, like you already said a little bit ago, too, uh, it wasn't an overnight miracle. It took a few months, it, uh, a month or so to get things really going yeah. here uh, as far as the numbers, because I look back at the month of June 
He ran the Cow Palace on the June 11th and the 25th, and they reportedly both drew combined only 9,300 fans. That's an average of 4,600 fans in the Cow Palace per show. And this was during a feud between Alexis Smirnov versus Chavo Guerrero on top. In fact, uh, it's stated uh, that that marked the lowest back-to-back drawing cards in Roy Shire's history as a promoter up until that point. So to, wow. things, so to say things were at rock bottom for the territory would be accurate as you get there. So you're kinda, you, you enter into this. You walk into this, Bob. The, the worst back-to-back houses in history. So now you, and you're already booking, but you're, you really can't control this. You're trying to build it back up. This is not an overnight, overnight deal. I hope people realize you can't just flip the switch and, oh, it's a good territory the next day. It's going to take some building to get the fans to realize things are changing. Oh, I like this angle. Oh, who's this guy over here? So now you've got to do something about these poor drawing houses and do something about it, you guys do. Because listen to this. We talked about 4,600 fans the last two times out. By the next card, July 16th, 8,150 fans. And do the math, guys. That's exactly a 75% increase in fans, Bob, in the middle of the summer, no less, in California. Wow. I'm, I'm, that's great. Uh, I, uh, I assume that that's credit's going somewhere. I'll be glad to take it if that's where it's coming. You got to take some of it. You're booking, right? I mean, some of the talent's <laughs> yeah. got to take a little credit, too. I mean, you got to have interest in the matches, so you got to have the right players. But certainly, I'm sure there was a lot of stuff going on on TV that built the intrigue. Well, you mentioned it, and see, that's the thing. Uh, it's not like everybody is still watching the TV, just not coming to the matches. A lot of people, the TV matches were the same too, right? And you know, they had this canned laughter, or, or not laughter, but audience. Applause. Horrible. I just, I just asked them to please stop doing it. It was just terrible. And uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, so yeah, the TV was boring and predictable, and. Same old stuff, and it was just tired. It was, uh, it was the same old crap. Now you do have a TV show every week, so let's look between that last forty-six hundred Cow Palace show and the next one, where it went up seventy-five percent. We would have had what three, three weeks of TV. Uh, June twenty-fifth to July sixteenth. So yeah, three weeks TV. Well, in three weeks of TV, the first week we might have been able to do something to. Uh, try to attract attention, enough attention where yeah, people we, say, actually, hey, but where, you know, because how do you get people to, to watch TV again? As you, if, say, there used to be five guys watch TV together. Now four of them don't show up anymore because it's gotten boring. And then all of a sudden you do something new to where the guy who's hosting the other four guys can call and say, hey, guys, you need to get back over here. There's some really good stuff going on. Right. Uh, that, that's kind of a catch-all or example. But, you know, for whatever matter, uh, on the street, uh, we didn't have text uh, texting then. People uh, getting the word out, hey, hey, there's a new uh, new show in town. Sure. And so uh, I think in three weeks, that sounds about right. By the third week, we'd have perhaps 75. I mean, because people wanted to watch wrestling. The reason that Shire was able to, he could go on to the wrestling studio and go in the office of the, I don't know whose it was. It wasn't, I don't think it was the president, but it was, book, uh, you know, the program director, whatever, was one of the most important guys there. And he was sitting in his chair behind the desk. It was in the evening, and nobody from the studio except the technicians were there. He spit on the wall. 
I mean, he'd hawk up a loogie and uh, are you you talking tobacco or just spitting on the wall? No, no, spitting phlegm uh, on the wall. (laughs) Yeah, he was a swine. I mean, he was just his habits. He, but he was, it was like a gesture of contempt. Like, hey, look at me, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the king here. I can do whatever I want. And he got away with it. I mean, right. uh, you know, I, I never saw anything like it, you know, but I, I didn't, I, I avoided going in that place as, as much as I could. Roy had a hard time talking to me. All I want to know is what he wanted me to, before I became Booker. Well, even after, all I wanted to know from him is what, what he wanted me to do as a wrestler, not as a Booker. Uh, and then I'd leave. And if someone's not talking to you, there's not all that much you have to say to them, is there? No. So I didn't give Roy any excuse to talk to me at any length. Yeah, he, he got away with that. So the reason he got away with that was because TV, uh, wrestling had become that TV station's number one show. I mean, and, you know, they had Gunsmoke, and, you know, all the great shows at the time. Wrestling was the biggest draw. They had their, their biggest audience for the wrestling show. Now, it had fallen off, I'm sure. And that might, you know, that might have been part of Roy's motivation in hiring me, was that he might be getting uh, notices uh, from the TV station that, hey, your ratings are not where we'd like them. You know, we're not, because ad revenue for a TV station depends on the number of viewers. Right. That's, that's why 15 seconds of the Super Bowl costs half a million bucks. That's why Ted Turner can run Gomer Pyle and... All those things that are used to be able, right, yeah. all that stuff because every one of those shows, even though they weren't top draws, uh, twelve minutes commercial time on each show, you're selling a thirty second spot for a couple hundred bucks or more, and and uh, uh, it adds up, you know, over when you're running twenty four hours a day, right, uh, seven days a week. So that's what made uh, Ted Turner a billionaire. But if the ad revenue starts going down in the in the TV station in Sacramento, they're going to let Roy know about it. And that's the threat to him being able to, you know, continue to make the money no matter how he made it by hook or by crook. And so that might have been his motivation for hiring me. I have no idea. I don't really know, but I can see it being a possibility. Let's put it that way. So we, we've already discussed this on the last episode, but I'll touch on it here again. You, you talked about how Roy basically he wanted you to be a gopher for him to to a degree. He wanted you to kind of book what he wanted booked. And you said Oh, well, Roy, we're going to do it my way, or I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be a part of this at all. Because if you want me to be the booker, I'm going to be the booker. So that's basically where we're at in regards to that right now. Uh, Let me interrupt. Let me sure. interrupt. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's correct. But after a while, uh, what I did first, I'll, I'll repeat this. He wanted me to ride with him to Fresno. Remember, I told you he yeah, drove his truck story. down. Right. Yes. Yeah. What I did was I avoided him. I avoided these meetings with him okay. for those three weeks that uh, we got the 75% boost. I avoided him. I never, he never was able to get me alone. So he couldn't try to change the, the show. Well, he, he, I told you what he tried on TV. He, first time he called me in, he said, well, uh, about the TV. I said, well, not, don't worry about the TV, Roy. I already got it. What? What, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, I've already got the TV taken care of. I mean, I'm the booker, right? The booker makes the TV, right? Yeah. And Roy was little ten god, and he wasn't real secure in how he knew he wasn't tough because that's why he had that pistol all the time. We're one-on-one in that office with the spit-covered wall. You know, he's not going to get into any kind of serious uh, beef with me. Um, so I just went out and ran the show. Well, after three weeks of that, uh, San Francisco went up. 
I mean, now I've got something to talk about. Now I've got something as evidence that I can do my job. And so then, then I was willing to talk to him after that. And plus, I had some guys there that were loyal to me. Now, Pepper stayed in the drill, of course, would have stayed loyal to Roy. Uh, and by having them, and that's not the reason I got rid of Madrill. It, it happened just like I said it was. Uh, it did. I mean, I would have kept him. He was he was okay. I mean, he wasn't. Uh, who was the mask uh, Mexican wrestler? Mel uh, Mascaris. No mask. Yeah, he wasn't no Mascaris. Let's put it that way. As a as a Hispanic talent, but you know, he was he drew. You know, he drew. He had Hispanic fans, so yeah, he, he was drew. A solid hand. I mean, I, I, I've yeah, seen, it was I've seen enough of Madrill stuff even in the eighties. Yeah. I mean, I, I get why you would keep him on the card. He certainly would. You know. He, Perfectly yeah. fine hand to have on your roster, but yeah. if there's issues, I get also the politicking. And you know, I'm not putting up with that as a booker either. But it's the combination of you changing how things are booked, the talent getting th- things done. They're, they're clicking on all cylinders. You even said you gave credit to Kevin Sullivan coming up for, with some of the ideas during your guys' feud over the next few months. So what do you know? To quote Jim Ross, business is picking up here in the San Francisco territory. And you talk about a turnaround, guys. The facts do not lie. You can argue, well, I never cared for Bob Roop. I don't like what he did. But look at this, 4,600, two shows in a row to 8,150 by the middle of July. And there was an angle involved in those three weeks here. And this is very interesting because you said you tried to avoid Roy during this period leading into the next Cow Palace card. But I saw Dean Ho, Dean Higuchi, uh, make a comment. And I'm, I, it felt that maybe he was crediting the wrong person, I thought, before I even talked to you here on the show today. So I wanted to get your ideas your, your memories, maybe you came up with this and you don't remember it. Maybe Roy really did come up with this, but uh, there was an angle uh, in July leading into the, the big show that drew 8150. The main event was going to be originally it was supposed to be Chavo Guerrero challenging Alexis Smirnoff for the U.S. title. But uh, they, there's an angle that takes place on TV. And it had me curious because Dina Gucci brings out a ukulele. I don't know if you know where I'm going with this <laughs> yet, Bob. Yeah, I do. Exactly. You want to tell it or you want me yeah, to Yeah, I was, I was going to read, the, read this part, and I was going to let you tell okay. it. You're, 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 okay. you, can, you can totally paint the, the real picture. I, according to the Rock Rims book about Roy Shire, it says that Dean Ho actually gave credit to Roy for the storyline. But I thought maybe that sounded like something you, know, you had come up with. And, and I'm not saying Dean did that on purpose, like to snub you. Maybe he really no. remember, remembered it that way. I just wanted, and literally in my notes here, I said, can you verify if Shire came up with that or you? And we'll get to that in just a second. But the angle okay. I'm referring to, guys, is Alexis Smirnoff comes out and he busts the family heirloom, the prized ukulele <laughs> over the head of Dean Ho. And this is the big thing I got a kick out of. Peter Maivia was there uh, in, the, in the studio when, when this angle took place. And it wasn't October or November of the same year that Peter goes up to New York and does the same angle with superstar Billy Graham. So where do you think he got it from? <laughs> well, he got it from me. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I was looking for I was looking for a way to uh, put some heat between Dean and uh, Smirnoff because there wasn't anything, you know. I mean, they both could rant and rave at each other. Well, Peter Dean didn't uh, didn't rant or scream or anything, but I thought about it. Uh, the ukulele, and I went to a, a toy store. I think I paid sixteen bucks for it. Let's put it that way. Okay, but but uh, <laughs> the family the sixteen bucks. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was just, you know, that was a story. Uh, yeah, it was, we could, we could say it was, and I just, I just managed to track it down after two centuries. There I found go. it in a toy store, but <clears throat> no, we made the story that Dean brought it out and he, he wanted to pay tribute to his family 
uh, his grandmother, I don't remember exactly, but there was something that was going on in his family that uh, this this ukulele represented. You know, what you think about it, this is very stereotypical type crap. They wouldn't want to do it today. Woke wouldn't allow it that you uh, do something stereotypical. Well, if they're if they're Hawaiian, there's got to be a ukulele out there. They would say, oh, no, that's terrible. But at the time, it seemed fitting. And so, you know, he made out that this was like a 200-year-old uh, ukulele. It had been in the family, and he'd sure. had the honor of having I think that's what it was. He had just had the honor of having had it passed down to him right. after his, his maternal great-grandmother died or something like that. So he, you know, we did a deal where Smirnoff came out and ended up, uh, the ukulele got set on a ring apron or whatever, and Smirnoff beats him up a little bit. Dean makes a big comeback, throws him out, or he goes out of the ring, and Smirnoff grabs the ukulele and smacks him with it and, of course, breaks it. And uh, they had some serious heat. I mean, it was something different. You know, Roy wasn't doing stuff like that. I'm really surprised to remember that that generated a main event match between Dean and, and Alex. That shit just shows didn't have anybody developed yet. Didn't have anybody to throw in there yet. There's another factor, a little segue here. Roy had done something that also killed his towns. He'd been doing it for years. It's called false booking. He would put people like Ray Stevens, or not, not the same time, but one show it might be Ray Stevens. Another show it might be Pat Patterson. It might be Professor Tanaka. It might be Fuji. It might be whoever it was were guys that were really over there at one time. And they were in like a special semifinal main event, mm -hmm. you know, right before the, the main event, a special match against some top heel there, or whatever their opponent would should be, heel or babyface. And uh, they, they wouldn't show. Roy never booked them. Oh, it was all false you know, advertising. Never intended, never intended them. To be there, I guess. Yeah, it's fraud. It's so fraud. it wasn't a it wasn't a matter of cards subject to change. This was just yeah. bullshit. Book. He did it. He did it on a regular basis, and uh, you know you want to kill your towns. That's the way to do it. That sounds like so. It. Yeah, so uh, we of course quit doing that. You know, I wasn't going to do any of that kind of crap. But that Dean and, and Alex go out, and I'm really I'm I'm glad to hear that. I didn't remember it again. There's so many. Every show I booked, I tried to watch all the matches, at least as many as I could. So I watched thousands of shows over the years. And, you know, when you talk about, say, an average of five or six matches per show, you're talking about maybe 10,000 matches that it's hard to remember uh, details like and or the circumstances going into it. But I do remember. Yeah, I do definitely remember that. And not, you look. <laughs> remember the board? The $13 board? Yes. I got proof that Roy Shire didn't buy the ukulele. He wouldn't have spent $16 and then had it knowing it was going to get broken. <laughs> no, actually, Dean has a, a comment, a uh, direct quote in regards to, Roy wasn't all bad. Uh, I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but it's something along the lines of, um, he assumed that Dean Ho had bought the, the, the ukulele, so he actually gave him 25 bucks. So Dean was like, I got an extra 25 you know, wow. or whatever out of wow. it. But, uh, I was just reading well, this I... feud here, and that was that headlined that July 16th show. And I think the angle only took place like the week of, uh, of the, yeah. the actual card, because it says that yeah. uh, Dean Ho had been, or not Dean Ho, but Chavo Guerrero had actually been working with Smirnoff uh, in the recent weeks. In fact, they were the ones that drew the lower car crowds. But it doesn't look like there was any major angles or stories going there. It was just Chavo chasing the title, 
And it looks like you just kind of came to the conclusion, like, this isn't working. And it maybe it's not Chavo, but we've already burned this bridge. We've already had a couple of matches with these two. So I got to come up with something new, something fast, something hot that might pop. And like you said, nothing was really established. It's just you threw shit against the wall and it happened to stick here. And I'm not knocking the angle. The angle's awesome. I, I, I This one, I don't think this exists on film, but that Billy Graham version does. And this one sounds hotter than the Graham version. But I mean, again, Graham didn't really need angles when he was trying to sell out the garden. But the one worry that Vince Sr. had was selling that one out with my right. idea. And they did, they ran that angle and, and, you know, and they did pretty good based on running that angle leading into the garden show. So it is so funny. It just took place. It was either October or November of the same year. So clearly Peter left, you know, San Francisco came over to New York and he, you know, he probably said, Hey, I got an idea guys. <laughs> well, and they, they rolled with it, but it's, it's a pretty cool, a pretty cool deal here because I was looking and the story continues. Like you have this story going over the course of the next three cow palace shows, because this sets up their first match on July 16th, draws 81.50. Uh, Dean Ho comes in for revenge and walks out the new U.S. champion. And then they do a rematch on July 30th, and Smirnoff gets a win by DQ because Ho gets so angry during the matchup, he accidentally nails the referee, gets disqualified. So now both men have a win. So you set up the rubber match August 20th in the Cow Palace, which Ho again wins before Smirnoff goes off to Japan. And then the storyline you guys tell is, Ho broke Smirnoff's leg in the match, so Smirnoff's gone. He's gone to Japan um, in reality. But you had a pretty quickly, you had a nice three-show story arc there as far as Cow Palace goes with, with your uh, championship, your top championship. Well, as far as uh, Billy Graham and Peter Maivia, imitation is the most uh, extreme form of flattery. And uh, I'm very flattered that Peter liked that idea enough to use it for himself. I'm actually looking back and I'm going, wow, because I remember that neither one of those guys was really over in the sense of, how, well, I mean, 4,600 people at the Cow Palace, you know, that's a very, very, very lousy house. Now, was Chavo working in the territory at the time? Was he working everywhere or was he coming in from L.A.? Uh, now, that I don't know. I didn't do a deep dive into which, where Chavo, the city's okay. Chavo was in because there's very little out there as far as all of the San Francisco towns. I, I can get some Cal Palace results and for some odd reason, Modesto, but it's very hard to find the rest of the rest of the stuff, uh, at least at this point. Well, sure. I don't remember. I don't remember Chavo being, I mean, I knew him, but I don't remember him being around okay. much. I don't remember, I don't remember actually doing. Well, I don't see his name in the Modesto show. So he may just be coming in for the big shows. So I don't know I if he's actually coming that, in for your TV or that could do it too. If he's not appearing on your TV regularly, that might add something to do with it as well. Yeah, so I think he was because uh, I don't remember booking him in other towns. Now again, I don't remember booking the other guys that I should, but or man, not should. It's been fifty years. What am I talking about? But sure. but looking back and being able to take uh, Dean and uh, Alexei, two guys, neither one who are really over, and to create enough interest to. Now that's not a that's not a tremendous. You know, it's still a, not a really great house at the Cow Palace. Uh, but it was a step in the right direction. And it was also, I was just getting started. And I was working with what, what was left to me when I got the book. I was, I was working with what was there. I had to look at, at the talent and figure out, uh, immediately started looking for new faces. You know, Roy thought that uh, having someone who'd been around forever uh, would guarantee drawing something. Right. And that's all he cared about. And again, I think now we're circling back when I always try to figure out why people do things. 
circling back, I think it might have been a pressure from the TV station uh, about uh, their, they had to lower their ad revenues so that they would say, uh, uh, Roy, you need to do something. So, you know, isn't it funny? I'll get off the subject just for a second, but, you know, Roy was a millionaire by the time, and I don't know where he kept his money. I mean, the cash he took out of there, I don't know where he put it. I told but... you, it's in the uh, Scrooge McDuck bank vault. Just <laughs> dive in. <laughs> well, but, you know, for a guy, think about that. With all the accoutrements of supposed success, look at it. You know, he's he's on the highway. He's having guys throwing beer cans at him or full cans of beer because he ran to somebody. He's He's got all these problems. Uh, He's got the TV station coming after him. He started dating. Now, he's married, of course, and had some children, at least one child at home. I know he had a son. And he started dating this playboy bunny. And he was, you know, he, he was really enthralled with her and all that. And she had a boyfriend who was a little bit of a, apparently was a little salty. They always make the story like he was Bruce Lee, a mixed martial artist. But you didn't have to be anything like that to beat up Roy Shires or well, the guy came up sometime, one time to Roy alone and said something to him about, you know, the girl, and he didn't resent Roy. You know, Roy was, you know, spent a lot of money on her, and he didn't, this kid couldn't match it, and he said he did, He resented that Roy would, you know, we wished we'd leave her alone, and uh, Roy gave him, you know, this typical brush off, and the kid beat the crap out of him. So uh, that was one. Uh, later on, Roy went home, and he, he asked his wife for a divorce. Because uh, he wanted to marry the uh, the, the the bunny, and uh, then Roy found out that that's fine. The wife can have the divorce, but she's going to have to get everything that half of everything that Roy has. Mm. So she's going to get whatever all of them, whatever he's got, she gets sure. half. So Roy changed his mind and said, "No, I don't want to divorce." <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine somebody being so screwed up? Oh my God! Wow. You know, you go back. You're going to sleep in the same house with a woman you already <laughs> told you you want to leave. Mm-hmm. And, oh God! Well, anyway, you know, I almost feel sorry for the guy, except he was such. Sorry, Roy. If you hadn't exposed the business, you know, in the L.A. Times, I would, I would have some mercy for you. But that's one of those sins. I got one of my buddies giving me a little bit of grief for <laughs> saying, you know. Is there anything in the business you're not going to talk about? And I said, no, there isn't really, quite frankly. I mean, uh, um, cat's already out of the bag at this point. So, oh, it's not like we're, you know, <laughs> not, I, I don't want to break anybody's heart out there. But, and, you know, the thing is, it doesn't mean anybody has to stop enjoying what they see. You're telling me, go, go see the movie Psycho if you've never seen it. Sure. And if it, if it's, it does have the effect that you that it has on me. It'll scare the crap out of you. Well, it's not real. That was a movie. It's actors out there. So does that mean to say, well, it was just a bunch of actors? Does that mean when you think back to what you felt during the movie, it didn't still scare the crap out of you? Right. <laughs> yeah. I'll, the story's told right, man. It's, I mean, it's, it's a different yes. level, but I, it's still, I, I get exactly what you're saying. Just, you know, I know everybody wants to believe that everybody thought that wrestling was real, but there was always a no. ton of people that knew that it, something wasn't on the up and up, right? Well, they didn't know how it, they didn't know the, the, what was going on behind the curtain, so to speak, but they knew something wasn't on the up and up. And like you said, very famous lines, well, you know, uh, all these guys are fake, but that the main event or the title match, now that was real. So they believed parts, but there were always parts that they kind of thought was, you know, something was up there. 
I had an acid test for that. I used, and it said, if you uh, called a person in, you isolated them, you put a gun to their head and said, okay, I want the right answer from you. Uh, is wrestling real or not real? Uh, 99 out of 100 would say it's not real. Sure. And that one person who needs it to be real for some reason or whatever, <laughs> hopefully my example here, I don't actually shoot anybody, but my <laughs> philosophy was that now, you know, now we have reality. You got a gun stuck to your head. What do you really think? Right. I think 99 people would say, okay, there's nothing about creating an environment here where you can believe it. This is reality. No, I don't think it's real. And so uh, I felt like it wouldn't hurt anybody's feelings. But look at it this way. One of the, the catch-all phrases or situations is the dad taking the son to the baseball game and then bonding at the baseball game. And, oh, wow. And then they had a catch when they went home. And, you know, it's like the field of dreams, stuff like that. Movies are made about that kind of stuff. So think about it. Wrestling's the same thing. I had... Today, I mean, uh, in, I mean, in today's times, the last convention I went to in Charlotte this past summer, I had people come up to me, the father, son, and say, yeah, well, it was 40 years ago, but well, we hated your guts in Florida. And, you know, one of them 70, another one's 50 or whatever. And, and uh, they had the same experience. Right. They had a bonding experience <laughs> through wrestling. Yeah. So does yeah. that mean that because wrestling's not real, like the movie's not real? That that's not legitimate? No, it does not at all. Here's the thing. It's against the law to do what wrestlers do. You can't, <laughs> Every hit, week. <laughs> you can't hit a guy with a chair and have cops who are security there watching and not arrest him because the legal code that they swore to uphold, you're seeing it broken right in front of them. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, we, we have to use common sense about this. And again, not trying to hurt anybody's feelings out there. No, I took it. I took it as a real compliment that people would greet me coming into Miami was always a great place for that. Coming into matches, people would greet me because they appreciate it. I worked hard to give them a good show. I think mm -hmm. that's what I'm thinking. Sure. And they say, "Yeah, Bob. Yeah, you. You know, you're a real jerk, Bob. You're going to usually something a lot much worse than that. But you're going to get your butt kicked tonight." And I say, "Yeah, yeah." But they were civil, you know. And then later that night. Maybe if I spot him at ranks, I go by, I'd be on top at the moment, you know, beating somebody up. I say, hey, how you like to him getting my butt kicked tonight? And they go, they froth at the mouth. They just go crazy, you know, like, ah, they want to kill me. <laughs> well, and next week, uh, going in again, there they are. Hey, Bob, you're going, oh, tonight you're really going to get. I appreciated that. Obviously, they didn't believe what I was doing was real. They would have never spoken to me like that right. going in. <laughs> So, well, it's just a suspension of disbelief. I mean, it's really yes, what it always yes. boils down to. And, and the uh, fact that you were able to do it for them, you are yeah. able to do it, is something that they, and that's what they tell me now. Sure. Oh, we hated your guts, you know, me and my son. That boy brought us closer together. One thing we had in common is we were figuring out ways to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, we're still here to tell these stories now. <laughs> but you know, I've, I was, been hiding. <laughs> I've been hiding for 40 years. <laughs> I was looking over this list of some of the guys that came through here. Now, some of these guys probably just stopped in on the way to Hawaii or Japan, more than likely. But just looking at this, some of these guys, familiar names to probably a lot of people out there, and some of them not so familiar, but they did work this era. Pretty familiar names for me, anyway. But on the underneath, guys like uh, Woody Farmer, uh, Texas Ted Heath, who was actually from the UK, quite a little gimmick he had there. 
Uh, Dr. Hiro Ota, I brought, up, brought him up to you before we went on the air. Yasufuji, you said a good friend of yours was uh, Yasufuji, and I thought that was interesting because you actually use him when you run Opposition Fuller as Colonel Yang Key as well. <laughs> so yeah, Yasufuji. So I'm assuming this is probably maybe where you met him, or did you know him from Florida? No, I met him in uh, I met him in California. He was there when I got there, okay. and uh, he and Smirnoff both uh, stayed at the same apartment building. And uh, Johnny and Jimmy Valentine were just getting ready to leave. Valiant, and yeah, been, yeah, they had, they had uh, been the tag team. Yeah, they had been the tag team champions. You're right, yep. right, Valiant. But thank you for for that. Yeah, and they were. Uh, I didn't know either one of them very well. I I think I'd met Jimmy before, but you know they were they were top team, and and uh, they were getting ready to leave. And they they had been staying with uh, an apartment renter out there, had been letting them use a spare bedroom to stay in. Uh, they passed it on to me, you know, like colleagues do for each other. While I was looking for my own apartment, first of all, before you do that in a place, it's smart to figure out if you're going to stay. You know, are you gonna? You don't want to sign a six-month lease, and then find out three three weeks later you decide you're gonna, you, you you don't like the way you're being pushed or whatever. You give right. your notice or you get fired or whatever, and so, you know you're stuck. You got to leave, so you're stuck having to pay that you know the balance of your, uh, or at least you lose your deposit. So let me tell a story. I think it's funny. A lot of people won't. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, that's a good segue there, Bob. A lot of people won't think uh, this is funny, but I'm gonna tell it anyway. <laughs> well, Oda and and uh, Smirnoff were both on green cards, I think. So uh, they had to be, you know, they had to be careful not to get in any trouble. And uh, the person whose apartment I was staying with was female, and she was about uh, oh, about six two and about three hundred pounds. Wow. And uh, nice enough, you know, she was nice and everything. Well, one night I had I stayed in the apartment. Uh, then there was a party going on across uh, the street, and she came. She'd been at the party, and she came back. She wanted to know why I hadn't been over there. She wanted to dance with me or something, or I, she was looking for somebody to dance with. And and Oda and uh, and Smirnoff trailed in behind her. You know, I didn't. I didn't say anything horrible to the girl or to the lady. She was probably twenty-five. Oh, I was thirty-five. So she slapped me. You know, out of the blue, whack. <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, you know, what are you doing? And she went to she went to slap me again, and I just very gently, just I didn't suplex or anything. I just gave her what's called a lateral drop, and <laughs> down onto her side, and I put the sugar hold on her. Now the sugar hold is like a any wrestlers out there. It's a reverse Nelson, uh, where their arms her arms were out of proximity to be able to scratch me or. Well, that's the reason I did it was to keep my now if I'd have cranked on a, and tightened up on the hole I, right. I would have put it off. It's like the sleeper hole. I wasn't doing that though. I was just holding her. I was talking to her. Come on, hey, this is a soldier doing here. Come on, I, I I'm going on TV. I don't need scratches all over me. Come on. All of a sudden now I look up and Fernand and Oda are both standing there. Both of them their jaw literally is down. A, their mouth is wide open. A flies, flies could have had a feast on them that day. Those big, and, bad heels. Yeah, they're both of them are looking down at us with eyes by, and looking back now, I can see the thought going through their head. My my green card, I'm watching it go up in smoke. Oh, you know? yeah. And about that time, and this this is the part, it sounds grisly, but it's not. Uh, apparently, she could have had an ear problem anyway. Her head was turned 
with her face facing them. So her right ear was down, uh, and it was about four inches off the floor, and a drop of blood. One drop now, not a gush, not a through an artery display. One drop of blood came out of her ear and hit the floor, and, <laughs> and uh, I, one time I looked down, saw I looked back up. Oda reaches out with one hand and smacks Smirnoff and says, "We go now, we go now." And, and Smirnoff says, "Hey, hey, man!" He elbows Oda and says, "Let's get the F out of here." <laughs> <laughs> well. Okay, now, now again, that, that blood part's pretty grisly. I understand that. But just one drop. She wasn't hurt. I obviously moved. I, I relocated fairly quickly. Yeah. But uh, I thought it was a funny story. We go now. We go now. Yeah, it's like yeah, Saida. We, we can go. We go home now. <laughs> Down in the Bahamas, you were telling that Saida story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A little bit of a different situation here, though. Yeah, that's, that's well, a cool, cool story with, with uh, them involved. But you just... It's so funny whenever you hear a story about these career heels that you, you're supposed to believe are these big, bad, tough, mean guys, and they get stuck in these situations, and they're they're just human beings, you know, in real life, and they're like, I don't want any part of this. <laughs> oh, no, of course not. Anybody that anybody wanted to live that life, they were psychotic, you know? I mean, they were asking, you, nobody was going to hang around with them. I mean, you, may, you might be caught in a crossfire, you know? Yeah. Uh, somebody after them, you know, guys that went around just... Looking, you know, I'm going to live my gimmick in public. You know, when when and if we get to the Road Warriors, we'll talk about that. About them going absolutely, you know, living their gimmick in public. Who else oh, did that? God. Iron Sheik did. Uh, there were a few guys. <laughs> I don't know if Sheik knew the difference. You know, in the later years, anyway. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh, he was a good guy too. They're all good guys. Yeah, they're all good guys. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking over some of the names. Still, <laughs> we shared a fun little story that Yasu Fuji, Jerry Monty, longtime West Coaster. Some of the guys that they really made it in the in the business, but they were they were solid hands. Terry Sawyer, Don Diamond. I'm looking at names here. Eddie Mansfield, one of the originals to reveal. Not he wasn't he didn't do it with um, Roy Shire in the L.A. Times, but he did it on 2020, and that's you know uh, basically gigged himself, kind of you know showed everybody the blade and exposed the business on 2020 right around uh, what was it 84, 85, something like that. Let's see who else we got here. Tom Jones. George Wells, former Canadian Football League guy. We even worked all the way up in uh, Titan by the mid-'80s, worked for Vince a little bit on the underneath. Twin Devils, Mexican Twin Devils, who do not get their due. I think they are pretty. They were pretty talented uh, twins uh, from Mexico. Uh, let's see. We got some other names here. Now, some of these guys, they don't pop up often, but they are bigger names, so I wanted to bring them up for the people out there. So we'll, re we'll revisit some of these names because I'm sure you did work with these guys at, from time to time. Ivan Koloff, Don Morocco. Chavo, we talked a little bit about him. Les Thornton, who was just amazing. Man of a thousand holds, Les Thornton. Uh, Chris Colt, who by all uh, accounts, just a wild, wild dude. And I'm, that's putting it mildly. Uh, bad, bad Leroy Brown. But there's a name that sticks out to me here, Bob. You bring Barry Orton in in the summer as well. A name that actually you're accredited for, at least online, for training. Now, you can tell me in a minute if that's true or not. But, of course, Barry the Sun of Bob Orton Sr., the brother of Cowboy Bob Orton Jr., the uncle of Randy Orton. Now, Barry passed away a couple of years ago, guys, but it says online that you were the one that basically had most of the hand in training, Barry. Is that true or false? And uh, what led you to bring Barry in here? Was it like a favor to the Ortons? Because you teamed with Bob for so long. Um, no, I didn't train Barry. He was already trained when I got him. Um, okay. I brought him in. I don't remember exactly why, but, you know, he was. I knew him. 
it was somebody, and I knew he, I could trust him. I would do, he do what I asked, and he was capable. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, he was a white meat baby fish. You know, he was, uh, you know, young and, you know, attractive, and he was a fun guy too. I liked him, but yeah, Barry was, uh, you know, and he never, uh, he never, I never had him featured. He was always lower card, but he made, right. you know, he made a living, and he was, he was learning his trade. You know, he was learning how to be a worker. Well, no disrespect. Uh, yeah. He never he never lived to his brother's potential, Bob Orton Jr. A junior was just another level. Yeah, and I don't know how. I never saw Dad work in his prime, Bob Orton Senior. Mm-hmm. I saw him work. He he was another one that worked as long as he could. I saw yeah. him when he came back, and he was in his fifties or maybe older, and just I don't know. He was supposed to be this great hand, but he had matches. The way he got heat in the matches, I saw especially if you put him in a, like an opener or a second match, was he didn't do anything. And he got heat that way because he just basically kind of stalled and refused to do anything. And Pissed yeah, he got off. heat. <laughs> the, he got heat. Maybe the wrong kind of heat, like, though? Yeah, cheap heat. Like, uh, you know, and, and uh, Bobby and I, when we were partners, we worked in Fort Myers one night, and Senior was there, too. And Bobby and I were having a lot of fun. Uh, so Senior had ridden down there with somebody. I don't remember who it was, but he decided he wanted to ride home with us and see if the three of us could get along and, you know, maybe have some simpatico. Now, Senior was serious conspiracy theory and, uh, you know, everybody's out to get us, you know, race, uh, religion, whatever. Everybody's out to come on, you know, kill us all. And, um, you know, had a serious uh, aberrant, very aberrant type opinion. So there was a <laughs> 7-Eleven store, or one of those convenience stores, we stopped at to get beer on the way out of town. So by the time we made it from the arena, uh, which was probably three miles to the, the store, uh, to get the beer, Senior's ride was also at the uh, at the station, the people he had ridden in with. <laughs> he, he, he told me to open the trunk. <laughs> that three minutes of me and Bobby, whatever we talked about, he had me open the trunk. He got his suitcase out and got back in the other car. And that's the last time he ever even thought about trying to ride with us. Uh, so, yeah, our opinion, our rationales for life are so different. Bobby was not at all civic-minded or whatever. He, you know, a good guy. Uh, he's a great, great one of the best, one of the best wrestlers I ever saw, one of the great technicians. Just uh, great timing. Uh, you know, he's looked apart. He's still working. I mean, uh, years ago, the last time I saw him at, at Waterloo, uh, he looked great. Uh, you know, he's got to be in his 60s, maybe older, 70s. And he said, he's, I said, I'm still working. I'm booked in Birmingham. He's talking like, he's, I'm still working. I'm, That's right, and, Daddy. Uh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I thought, well, you know, good for you, Bobby. <laughs> I didn't want to say it. I wanted to say, I'm glad I'm not. You know, I did. Don't, being don't your the, son, doesn't, doesn't your son pay your bills by now? Jeez. <laughs> Well, you know, Bobby, again, was great, great talent. But, you know, the, the things that, that happen behind the scenes sometimes are, and that's what folks are, inter- are interested in. But the things that happen, some of them are really should be kept in confidence because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't want to denigrate the, the Ortons or anything. They, you know, they accomplished in terms of wrestling. You know, they talk about accomplishments, you know, three generations. Right. Uh, senior, senior and... Uh, Bob and Barry, and then uh, Randy, you know, uh, and maybe Randy's kids will get into it. I don't know. But I just hope that they have a, a happier private life than they their predecessors did gotcha. because 
Yeah. Fair it's, enough. It's not, well, back in the day, we talked about it last week, back in the K-Fave day, Senior would come home and pretend to be hurt, you know, and sit on a couch for a week and or lay on the couch. Okay. And he, he wasn't hurt at all. And, of course, it created some serious problems at home. His kids thought he was hurt, and they're crying, you know, oh, daddy's hurt, and all that. And it created some serious problems for them, especially when they found out it was, you know, all put on. Anyway, uh, uh, let's see. Where we, we're talking about the guys you talked about. Yeah, just running through some names here. We just talked about Barry Orton. I had a couple more names. And then we're going to get into your big feud with Kevin Sullivan uh, to finish out the show this week. I hadn't realized Jimmy Golden, you know, the cousin of Robert and Ron Fuller. For those who grew up in my era, you may remember him as Bunkhouse Buck in the WCW in the early to mid-90s, a, a dusty creation, baby, if you will. Jimmy Golden pops up here in San Francisco, which is odd because he seemed to be more, mostly a Southeastern guy. Again, you know, family of the Fullers, the Golden Fuller, Welch, and all that good stuff down there. Um, but he's here for about six to eight weeks, June to August. And then he disappears, even though his name appears on a lot of the ads still. So at first I wondered, was he only scheduled to be there for a little bit of time? But it looks like he was supposed to be there longer. I don't, I don't remember even having him, if you want to know the truth. I don't, and I don't know why he disappeared. I got a Knoxville story, if you want to hear that, about disappearing. Um, Jimmy Golden? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can uh, sidestep for a minute and, and uh, listen to a Jimmy Golden story, I suppose. Well, sorry, Jimmy. Uh, these, those <laughs> old stories come out. It's nothing personal. Jimmy, uh, I, I roomed with him for uh, a while for, before I took the book. Uh, you know, I didn't go in there to be the booker. Uh, it just happened. And uh, but I roomed with Jimmy and we got along. I liked him. I still like him. I mean, he's a good guy, but he had bought a new car. Uh, I don't remember what it was. It doesn't matter. But uh, he didn't like it and he didn't know what to do about it. He had insurance. So he decided what he was going to do was he was going to uh, somebody told him that if your car burns up. Mm, uh, I saw where this is going. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, Ricky. I want to say Morton, Ricky Morton, or maybe Ricky Gibson, maybe it was Ricky Gibson, was with him and told me the story that uh, Jimmy drove the car around around the corner and there was a building between them and uh, Ricky was waiting. Uh, <laughs> and what Jimmy did was he had taken a gallon of, I don't know, gasoline, kerosene, something flammable, and he poured it down in the wheel well of, of the driver's seat and down on the floor and he poured a big bunch of it in there. And then uh, what Ricky saw was that he was he was sitting around the corner, leaning against the car. And he said he heard this ba-boom, and he looked, and he saw a cloud of smoke and flame come over, up over the top of that building that was between them. And what Jimmy had done was he poured that stuff in there and not realizing that you got all kinds of fumes in there. Sure. And he took, he took a lighter, instead of taking a match or something, a rag, and like, you know how in the movies, they always take the powder or the gasoline and they make a trail of it like 20 or 30 feet away right. from yeah, sure. where and then they light that. Yeah. Jimmy, Jimmy leaned down with a lighter and was going to light the fluid uh, in the, on the wheel oh, wall of the car. Yeah. And all the all the fumes inside exploded. And so it uh, it didn't burn him too bad. It, he had some had some uh, blisters on his chest. Uh, but it burned his eyebrows off. I was going to ask, uh, in, in comical burned, fashion, I was going to ask you, did he singe his eyebrows? But you're telling me it actually happened. Well, they burned him off. He burned, uh, he burned about an inch of his hairline 
for some reason, I'm looking for him. And I called around, and I called, uh, I called this Ricky Gibson. And Ricky said, uh, I said, do you know where Jimmy is? I'm trying to find him. And he said, uh, he, he's over in Dothan or wherever he lived. We're in Knoxville now. I said, I said, what's he doing over there? He said, well, he left town. I said, why? So Ricky told me his story. And <laughs> what happened was Jimmy was thinking that just by blowing up his car, he had committed a crime. That wasn't a crime. I mean, I, I, you, you might get in trouble for like loitering or whatever, but if you clamp your mess, you can blow up your, you can burn your own car anytime you want. Sure. Uh, they prefer you don't do it in a public place or, you know, where it impacts anybody else or sets another building on fire. But that's that self is not a crime. What a crime is, is when you, you go to your insurance company and say, hey, insurance uh, my fraud. car, yeah, insurance fraud. Well, he hadn't done that. But he thought just by burning the car that he was he was he was already broken the law, so he left town. Wow! I had to I had to call him and said, Jimmy, Jimmy. I said, man, I said you haven't broken any law. I said if you try to report the car to your insurance company, that's breaking the law. I said basically all this done is cost you a car, you know, which twenty twenty five thousand bucks or whatever. That's serious enough. Yeah, he came back and he oh he was uh, yeah he worked, you know he put on a t-shirt you know, he had a patch on his chest that was kind of raw and uh, little spots here and there he was lucky to blow his head off. Good story. But uh, <laughs> I never heard well, that one you know, before. <laughs> yeah, you know, and again, Jimmy, I'm sorry, brother, I don't mean to embarrass you, but you know <laughs> when you do stuff like that, I mean it's just gonna <laughs> yeah, it's gonna come out. It, it took uh, this many years. I think you did a good job of keeping it under wraps for a while. There's. This... <laughs> Pass, hopefully that passed the uh, statutes of limitation, just like if uh, Jimmy just happened to file for insurance there, or who knows what really what really went down. Uh, that's a good story. Thank you for sharing. I'm glad I I'm glad I sidestepped here for a moment, and let you do that little segue into the uh, Jimmy Golden world because I just I always like enjoyed him. He was a a fun character on TV. He just seemed to really enjoy getting in the ring, just having fun. So that, that oh, always came best. across. Yeah, he's the best. He's one of the best guys around. He's a real good guy. He really is. He doesn't have a mean bone in his body, you know, just a really sweet guy, big, tall, handsome, charming guy. You know, girls just loved him and uh, uh, probably guys, too. You know, I wouldn't know about that. But, sure. uh, yeah, he was, a, he, was a, he was a real good guy. I wish him well. I wish sure. him, I hope, everything. Now, the one other name you mentioned that might take some time and maybe you don't want to talk about now is Chris Cole. Um, Let's save that because if that's going to take time, I'm here for it. And I want to make sure we do that one justice. And I know everybody out there, it's kind of like, you ever, you ever hear those movies that didn't really do well at the box office when they came out, but later on they became like a, a cult following, like they became a huge movie years after the fact? That's Chris Colt in the wrestling world. It's, you can call it the cult following, I suppose, because in recent years, I mean, people have really caught on to that crazy train that was Chris Colt. So if you have stories, believe me, we'll tell those stories. Yeah, uh, we, we should. He, he uh, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good story. I spent uh, oh a couple months before uh, I got an apartment, and uh, and uh, my girlfriend came out and lived with me for a while. I, I stayed a lot with Col with Chris because we had the weekend off. I was out there by myself, and he was good company. You know, I mean, he was sure gay. It was fun. He didn't. That wasn't a problem. You know, yeah, he didn't hit sure. on me. I mean, uh, we had our wrestling. I right. tell you what ended, what ended our relationship was when I became Booker. I couldn't hang around with the boys anymore, right? You know, because I was I was management, right? Even even middle management, but you're still management. You can't be both. 
Yeah, we talked about that. But, yeah, last week you mentioned yeah. like it's just yeah. not your middle management, and unfortunately, yeah. you know, one day you're you know you having fun with the guys, and you can't do it anymore because they have to look no. at you as an authority figure, so to speak. Well, you might have to have to let them go. Yeah, you know, yeah, you might that, have to fire them. Right? You, know, yeah. you say, "Well, I thought you were my friend, Bob, and you're firing me." I mean, what do you say to that? So, yeah, when you become Booker, you have to. It doesn't mean you're cold, everybody. No. Just let people know you're not riding to towns with them anymore. Right. And you're not cutting up in the dressing room with them anymore. Sure. You have to put a little bit of a reserve into your your relationship to let them know that, look, it's not the same. So, so okay, got, we'll save that for later. Yeah, I, we are done. And it won't be, believe me, that is number one on my list the minute we get done with San Francisco. So <laughs> we will talk Chris Colt very, very soon, guys. Hopefully before the new year. How about that? And as far as uh, anybody out there, please bear with me. Don't get impatient. Uh, if you're going to be around, I'm going to be around. I'm Ray and I are going to be doing this for a while, and we're, you'll everything I know, you'll eventually know. And, and then maybe at that point, you go, you know what? At this stage, I've learned too much about Bob Roop. I don't think I want to know anymore. But let's hope we haven't gotten there yet. All right. I don't know if you have any quick stories because this is another big name, so there may not be any quick stories here. But I noticed somebody came through. It looked like a, a one night deal, and it's probably I think he was in Los Angeles at the time, setting the the territory on fire up there. Probably the last major heat getting heel for the Labels, and I'm talking about Roddy Piper. And it looks like he comes through here, and I don't even know if you recall this happening because it was you know so long ago, but. For randomly one night, you get to tag team with Roddy Piper here uh, back in 77 during the summer of 77 here. And I don't know, you know, what provoked him to come through, come down for one show or what the deal was, but uh, you, you get to team with him here. So I, d I don't know if you re specifically remember dealing with Piper when you were out in San Francisco or if you have any other Piper stories you could share. Well, I do. Uh, Roddy and I, uh, I'm trying to think how. It might have been... Uh... Going through L.A. to go to Japan, my sister lived in a suburb, a Thousand Oaks, and I might have stopped there for a couple of days to visit with her and somehow got involved with, with wrestling. I don't know how I would have run into Roddy, but we met. In fact, I saw his apartment when he lived there. I was at a, It wasn't an apartment. It was like a one-room one, one efficiency. I, you know, Roddy, wasn't. he hadn't made it yet. He was, he was learning. He, was, he wasn't green anymore, but he wasn't uh, WWF stature yet he was uh he was very very good you know i like his i like his gimmick i like his stick 10 years later i came home one time and uh my wife was ironing and she said oh she said i i just hate i just hate that roddy piper my wife was smart to the business right i said what are you talking about i said you know he's one of the boys she said yeah but she said he's so irritating and nasty i just hate him <laughs> it was his interviews and that was when Roddy yeah. was working at WWE. Yeah. It was his interviews. And, you know, he, he was. He was irritated. He was. And that's why he drew. You know, you had Hulk Hogan, who's twice Piper-sized, all his muscles. Roddy was never muscular. I mean, he was fit, but he was still wasn't big. If, if Hogan had a 50-inch chest, right, Roddy had 40. Hogan had 23-inch arms. Roddy had 16. But he was just as menacing in his own way. Uh, who knows what he had under that skirt or that kilt? <laughs> yeah, he, you know you don't you know you don't have to always look the part to be that. That's what sex acting is about. But um, so I, when she said that, I said, "Honey," I said, "You know, he he is just uh, 
he is just acting here, you know. She said, yeah. She said, but I just hate him. So I said, man, that guy's got some heat. Because my wife wasn't an idiot. She sure. was pretty smart. Sure. Pretty smart girl. You know, you going back, we got very lucky that there's a lot of that run that he had in Los Angeles out there. He worked under a hood after he was supposed to leave town. He came back as the Canadian, Canadian flag hood. Uh, then, he, you know, he got the heel heat in Los Angeles. He went to Portland and really, really stole the show out there as a heel before he went baby face and then became the top face there. Then he went to Crockett and, you know, Georgia and, and did did everything that he did there. And then eventually, obviously, as you know, he winds up in the WWF and Hollywood and, and so on and so on. So that is a guy who you're right. It wasn't the biggest guy, but man, he could talk. <laughs> Got to put him yeah, up there at the and, top of all time. Well, yeah, and he was a good guy too. Uh, when we were out there, when they made the movie, uh, cauliflower alley with, uh, Sylvester Stallone, Terry paradise, Fox, alley. Was, paradise alley. Sorry. Yes. You're fine. Uh, Terry Funk was doing the, the stunt gathering for the show. And uh, uh, I ran into Roddy out there. I, I'm not sure. I might have come down from San Francisco for a weekend or whatever to hang out. I might have I might have been let go by that time or ended my my stay up there with Roy. But uh, I don't remember exactly. I might have the, the dates wrong. But whatever, what for whatever reason, time or place I was there, I saw. I got together with Roddy, and we went to to Terry's hotel to talk to him. You know, he offered me to be in the film if I wanted to, and so I took the booking. It paid, I think, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks. Uh, but they wanted me to cut my hair because it was a period piece back in the 1920s. I didn't do that. I just slicked it. I put Vaseline on it, just slicked it down. So I never, although I'm in the credits for the movie, uh, at the end, uh, you never see me. Uh, so, which is fine. Yeah, Roddy was, was uh, he was always a good guy. And once he made it, and he he was a big star everywhere, uh, I don't want to say he changed. He wasn't quite the same uh, exuberant. You know, he, you, you get, when you get into, you know, there's politics in wrestling. And when you get into some of the backroom stuff that goes on, some of the hard, the, you know, the, the nasty deals and, Guys snarking on each other and trying to, you know, other guys on top. Some everybody's knocking them because they think they should be on top. And, you know, you get you put up with that kind of stuff. And guys who you thought you were friends uh, are not really your friends, uh, you know, when it comes to trying to make that top buck. So he had showered a little bit. But uh, and when I ran into him, it wasn't the same as, as 10 years or 15 years. No, it wouldn't have been 15, say 10 years earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had the good fortune of uh, 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 he got inducted into the Waterloo Hall of Fame, and I was there that year. I had a chance to have a drink or two with him, or and and we got to talk about old times. And that cloak of whatever was bothering him when he was working had disappeared, and he was back to you know more unencumbered and more able to, to you know show happiness. And you know he should have been proud of being inducted into the Hall of Fame, of course. Right. So it was good to see him like that. It was the last time I saw him, so it was good. But back to Hammond with Roy, and I thought about this the other day. I've been thinking pretty regularly. As I thought, and I was thinking, you know, I, I would have really, I tried to bring, I tried to bring Roddy up there. You know, he, he would have come up there and worked full time. But Shire said, no, I had him up here and beat him, and uh, don't, I don't, I, I don't want to do it. And I don't remember. I don't know. I guess it was at a point in my career or my relationship with him where I had not gotten, this must have been early on, 
where I had not gotten that credibility from having the business improve to a stage where I could insist on things. Okay. And if I had, now the thing is, once you get things going, uh, you get everybody, you've got a bunch of new guys over, suddenly there's no more room for everybody. You know, I mean, there anybody new. Right. Because, you, you know, you fill those places and you spent two or three months on TV uh, putting deep people over, you know, getting new people over. So, and there's no place, there's really no place. Everybody's fairly new. So there's no, there's no need to hire any new talent right away. And that would have precluded me, uh, you know, going to them after the fact. But I really wish I could have, well, again, if you change anything, then uh, that means I wouldn't be sitting here now. So I can't say I, I would have been nice. Let's put it that way. Sure. Because I, I would have liked to have worked with him. I never worked with him. I mean, uh, in a stay in their territory, like riding down the road in a car with him would have been great. What a, oh, what a great, what a, fun, yeah. what a fun guy. Yeah, yeah, he was smart. Look at all everything he did. He got in movies. You know, he was a, the guy was sharp. He was a sharp guy. In fact, he had my wife, and my wife was not a dummy. She was a smart girl. Right. But he, she, he just irritated her. She said, <laughs> she said, I just hate that guy. She was talking about his, his performance, really. And I said, well, he's, honey, he's really doing his job. He's got yeah, you mad at yeah, him. There you go. So, so yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's Roddy. Well, Roddy, to me, is one of the greats. He had, like everybody else, you pay a price for, for getting to the top. I, but I think that he, I think he, his, everything he got from it is independent of what it cost him. I think he, I think he made, I think he came out on a positive side with his career. You always wanted more, you know, from Roddy Piper. Yeah. I always left you wanting more. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what's a shame is for a lot of these guys. And I remember at one time at, uh, I think it was maybe Waterloo. And I watched, wherever it was, I watched Sputnik and Roll walking down a hallway. And he was probably in his 60s by then, late 60s. And he was walking down a hallway. And he was just, he looked so miserable and alone. He came from the cafe era where you couldn't. You know, and he had never made it into these conventions and things where right. you could you could mingle with fans to tell you how much they enjoyed your work. Well, what a benefit that is! I mean, what a a way to say, hey, say what? Well, you know what? I spent all those years on the road. And I got out of it. I mean, I messed up my family life. I messed up my health. You know, I you know, got all these things that as a cost just to make some money and supposedly to you know become famous. You know, which. Really, <laughs> that ain't all what it's cut out to be either. You can't go in the bathroom without people bothering you or, you know, thinking it's okay to come up to you, which right. it is because you make your, made yourself a public figure. You're asking for it. So, you know, to know that you have that where people can come up and just say, what I just said, they're telling you how much they hated you, which, are, which it basically they're telling you how, much, how well you did your job. And it would have been nice if Sputnik could have gotten some of that, you know, and all the old timers sure, who had to sure. kick kayfabe and hide them after even after they retired they had to hide themselves away they couldn't go out in public because you know they were worried about people think about it if you spent your whole career pretending that what everything you did was real then when you could meet people afterwards later are you going to are you going to open up or you confess confess and say no it wasn't of course you're not you'd make you look like a total clown Sure, and back you know, then when it was still kayfabe, I mean, you're exposing the business if you do that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. in a sense, if you look at, you know, try to look at Silver Lining, what uh, McMahon did uh, in a way was helpful 
because it did allow uh there was now there's a, a gray line there's not it's not all black and white there's a gray area where you can get together with people and you can talk about things and they're not insulting you when they say oh we like we like that thing you did and where you said what do you mean thing uh i, you know, I was in the hospital you know and you, you get all upset you sure. because that you, you have to to protect your credibility it's nice to be able to say well thank you very much you know <laughs> uh, i i bought a, Remember how much you hated me? I had to go out and buy a shotgun because of people like you. But uh, <laughs> well, you talked you talked about uh, you know being able to enjoy you know the things that you did in your career nowadays. People you know the wrestlers being able to do that now they weren't able to do it in the past. One of the things you should be really proud of is uh, is your feud here with with Kevin Sullivan because you know now Dean Ho and Smirnoff no doubt you know they aided in drawing the cards that big angle with the ukulele as did several other solid talents in the territory uh, and your booking, obviously. There was another feud, however, that just never seemed to find a resolution. Uh, it somehow managed to gain more and more steam with every passing week, every passing month. Every time you thought they couldn't possibly do more guys, they did. And that feud involved Kevin Sullivan versus Bob Roop. And uh, I want to go back now and talk about your feud here as uh, we close out the show. We won't get into the entire feud. I have it uh, segmented into two parts. We'll actually open the next episode with the demise or the end of uh, your run here, yours and Kevin's feud, and then, you know, what goes on, what transpires afterwards as well. But uh, I wanted to kick things off here this week, if that's okay with you. Sure. Let uh, our listener out there know that uh, I'm going to segue. You know, we talked about it before. I'm just going to. So we might not get to everything you had planned. And if we don't, we'll do it next time. If we took an extra show to do it on some subject, I don't know if that's bad if the stories are good. It just gives <laughs> us more more to talk about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I did want to get this thing uh, cooking, though, because it's just su such such good okay. stuff. And, I, you know, I want to leave everything on a high note and get everybody kind of pumped for, you know, what's to come for the rest of this feud here. So we go back in time. Kevin Sullivan arrives in late June of 1977, he actually makes his Cow Palace debut June the 25th, uh, scoring a win over a masked Mr. X. And straight away on TV afterwards, Kevin makes it clear he's in the San Francisco territory and he's on a mission. As lifelong North California wrestling fan Rod Higashino remembers it, he says, Kevin did a bunch of promos right off the bat saying how he was going to get Bob Roop, hinting at what had happened in their past saying, Bob hurt someone close to me. He knows what he did. Roop was like family, and he turned on us. Now, apparently the story was that Kevin Sullivan and Bob Roop were great friends, partners in Florida, continued Rod. He says, when Kevin's quote-unquote younger brother John wanted to break into the business, Kevin and Roop trained him. This happens off-air, guys. This doesn't, we don't actually see this happening. And soon after John's debut into wrestling, uh, he met Roop in the finals of a tournament. Surprisingly, he rolled up Roop to win the match. And after the match, Roop, he gave him several shoulder breakers, putting him out of wrestling for good. Do you remember creating that storyline, that backstory? We don't, we don't even see it. You guys are just telling it on television that you essentially, you were friends with Kevin in the past. Uh, you helped break his brother into the business, and then you take him out of the business. Uh, yes, I, I, I do remember that. Kevin came up with it. I mean, I give credit where it's due. And he, but he pitched it to me before he ever came out there. Okay. And it sounded good to me because it would get a, a, instead of having to take two or three months to get him over by having him 
go on TV and in the house shows and just beat, you know, beat people on his way up the card. He didn't have a like a kind of stature. I hadn't been on magazine covers or anything like that to where you could just bring him in like you would, uh, you know, uh, Pat Patterson or somebody like that. Uh, or let's say uh, Billy Graham or uh, Jack Briscoe or, or, you know, someone like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, how do you get a guy like that started or get him over right away? It's by having, they do it all the time now. They've been doing it for years in WWE. They don't do the angle in the ring. They do it in the backstory, in motel rooms, in hallways, in the parking lots and stuff. They do, they set up these, these angles to create the issues between people that normally used to take three or four weeks uh, in a house show uh, or a different series of matches. Or start with a regular match, then you have a, Say uh, two, a couple matches, one uh, non-title. Then you have a title match. Then because the heel runs, you have a, a lumberjack match. And then because the heel still managed to get away, you have a, 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 a cage match. And then because that didn't work either, you have a loser leave town match. Well, though you know you're talking, and you throw a couple more in there. You're talking about a couple months worth of angles. Well, you have to build those up, and you have to get someone before you even start doing that. You have to give them the stature to be competing for a championship belt in the area. So how to get Kevin there was by having given the impression that happened somewhere else. And when he pitched it, I, no, I give him the credit. He came up with it. He provided most of the uh, concrete things that went on in the in the angle. I only, only prov- provided the ability to actually do it. So. I have to say I contributed too, because uh, you know I had to say so on what we were going to do. So we did it, and it worked. And Kevin and I used to talk all the time on the phone, and uh, he had great ideas. I didn't do, we didn't do all of them, but most of them. And I'm not going to I'm not going to get ahead of you, but he was able to bring other family members into the mix. He sure was. Oh, indeed. But it's just amazing. This John Sullivan story, this brother of Kevin that you took out, doesn't exist to the best of my knowledge. And certainly the angle never even happened. There wasn't a video. There wasn't a backstage incident or anything like you were talking about nowadays. This is just hearsay. They're just, he's just coming on TV and telling the story, and people believe. And it works because, you know, you guys start making some really good money here pretty fast. Sullivan stating that he had been chasing Roop around the country to exact revenge, but that Bob had managed to stay one step ahead of him. Thus, the yep. Get Roop movement began with Sullivan wearing T-shirts with that slogan, Get Roop, printed on them, and the fans rallying behind him in support. What followed was an engrossing storyline, like a well-written soap opera is what they referred to it, Bob, kept the fans anxious to see the next installment. And so we'll look at the next installment now here. Sullivan and Roop faced off in several tag team matches throughout the course of July, uh, but neither Sullivan nor his fans received the satisfaction as Bob would run and tag out whenever Sullivan got in the ring. I wrote classic heel shit there, Bob. So <laughs> finally, Sullivan corners Roop when he was booked to challenge him for the TV title at the Cow Palace on July 30th. So your guys' very first match against one another, one-on-one, is July 30th. No more running and hiding from the heel Bob Roop here. As uh, one of the fans uh, recalls, the tension in the air was very palpable. And when the bell rang, Sullivan unleashed his fury. After more than 20 minutes of intense action, Sullivan won the match, but not the title. The stipulation was that to win the title, 
The champion had to be pinned in the first 20 minutes. So Sullivan gets a big win here, but he doesn't get the belt. Right. Yeah. Well, that was, uh, yeah, that was uh, uh, heady memories there. Uh, you know, the thing is that we were able to give, the matches were good. I was in top shape. I was in my prime. I was, you know, I was taking bumps and like that than very few people took. Uh, and Kevin was solid. You know, he was, he, he wasn't, uh, he didn't have to do a lot of selling. I never, I never got him down, held him in a hold for five, six, eight minutes because it, it didn't call for it. We didn't need to do that. We did a lot of action, a lot of action in our matches on our feet doing stuff. And uh, I ran. I that was a big part of my repertoire was putting it reverse and uh, getting them to chase me even uh, where I could run around, jump out of the ring, run around and slide in the other side. And he as he he would be behind me as he slid in. I boot him in the head uh, as he slid through the ropes. He'd be down, you know, with his head face down. I boot him in the head and take over on him. And then I tap my forehead like I was a genius to get him to chase me. And uh, they were starved. Now, to give us credit is great, but there's another factor. Roy has starved them for this kind of thing. He hadn't used any new people. Uh, and he hadn't created any kind of personal angles like this. How more personal can it be than you actually assaulted someone's family member and put them out of, you know, you, you know, put them out of commission, right. uh, ruined their life. And, you know, now you're... At, See, that was another part that, that gave it credibility, was when I did interviews, I not only, I substantiated what they said. I didn't deny it. I substantiated. I said, yeah. Oh, yeah, I did that. You know, a punk had it coming or something like that. <laughs> and and, uh, and I'd do it again. In fact, I'm going to do it, you know, Sullivan, you don't watch out, I'll be doing it to you. Right. And, uh, uh, and so that substantiated it. Uh, we're both telling the same story. I'm saying that what he said is true. So, yeah, that's what made them. People said, well, it's got to be true. If they're suspended their disbelief and they don't think we're working together, they said, well, God, Roop hates him and he hates Roop and they're both telling the same story. We believe it. And that's how it worked. And, it, you know, I'm, thank God it did. Yeah, once that, once that started, I was gold with Roy. You know, he tried, but he never could. Uh, it was lame probably, duck. By that probably, enjoy, probably enjoying the money by that point, I guess. So, oh, yeah. We do the, you do the angle, you know, that never really took place. You tell the story about uh, his brother. You took him out with your patented finisher, the shoulder breaker. And during this matchup here on the 30th, it's actually Sullivan who lands a couple of shoulder breakers on you. And uh, I guess maybe from there, you, you do an angle on TV, if I'm reading this correctly. So Sullivan does your own finisher on you, the same move that you used to take his brother out of professional wrestling. And... And you, it, is, it says here you left on a stretcher. So they take you out on a stretcher, apparently. Do you remember that happening? You going out on a stretcher here, selling the shoulder. And, and basically, this is where, you, you know, you, you announced that your shoulder's broken and you're not you're unable to compete. Oh, yeah. Now I remember. I don't remember the stretcher part. I, I'm pretty sure it happened. But, uh, boy, I'm telling you, when you're healed, getting carried on a, on a stretcher is scary business. <laughs> I bet it you're is. Laying, you can't really defend yourself. There. Somebody <laughs> throw a cannonball off the balcony. Trying to hit you in the head with it, uh, your, your perfect target laying, you know, slowly yeah. being transported up the aisle. But yeah, I remember that, and and uh, you know, I had to do my part too. And always, I got the crap beat out of me. I always got beat, but I had a technicality of some kind to keep the title. Right. Oh man, I'm telling you, come up with stuff like that. Uh, some of it, Kevin and I came up 
together. Some of it he came up with. Some of it I came up with. Uh, stuff that was new. I mean, for us anyway. Right. Um, Shakespeare said there's only so many plots. There's 29, 27, something like that. And there's no more. Uh, but I think that we came up with, I don't think we came up with anything new. Well, it was something applied to our business that hadn't been sure. done a well, lot. The scary part here is you're only a month into this feud. It's only your first match. You guys are going to work each other through the end of the year. And, and it's going to keep going, getting more and more intense as everybody's going to find out as we continue going along this, this uh, basically six-month feud that you had with Kevin here in the territory. Uh, you know, so you go out on a stretcher uh, by accounts of fans, that their memories anyway, of this matchup back on July 30th. And you show up on TV with your arm in a sling. Uh, you state right. that, that you have now been crippled, much like you had done to Kevin's brother. So a little bit of revenge yep. there. Didn't he have to be sanctioned somehow for using a crippling hold on me? I don't, yeah. I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Usually, yeah, we're getting there. That so, was usually part of that routine. <laughs> I don't know how you sold this on TV, but apparently uh, the announcer, Hank Renner, and the studio fans weren't really buying it. They didn't believe Bob Roop was actually injured to the degree he he was claiming that he was here in that, uh, in that arm sling. Uh, but then we get a videotape aired from the Florida Territory, Gordon Soley interviewing NWA president Eddie Graham regarding the situation. Graham stating that there was a long-standing rule in the NWA against moves being used to deliberately injure an opponent. Graham also stated that because it appeared that Sullivan was using the shoulder breaker to intentionally hurt Roop, the move would now be banned in the San Francisco Territory, and Sullivan would be placed on probation until the extent of Roop's injuries could be determined. Sullivan would also be subject to indefinite suspension should he use that move again. So Kevin and the fans considered it a travesty of justice that he would now risk dire consequences for using the same move on Roop that Roop had used to severely injure his brother. I wrote, oh, the intricacies here. And how did you get, you know, Eddie Graham to agree to make this video so quickly? Uh, just called him. You know, I mean, he was, Eddie was... Uh... He he was still on the wagon, and uh, you know I was one of his proteges, uh, so to speak. And I mentioned last week what he said to Shire about me being just coffee carrier and all that. I think he was proud. One of his guys was out there, uh, you know, being a booker. That's kind of the highest station that a wrestler can reach. I mean, you can become an owner, of course, but not just being able to manage and choreograph or or coordinate your own career. But that of everybody working in that area uh, is, uh, you know, it's noteworthy. I always had the utmost respect for Ole Anderson because he was uh, booking in in Charlotte and they ran three towns a night. At the same time, one time he was booking uh, Charlotte, uh, Atlanta. He was booking like four or five, six towns a night. And I mean, every night. And so I thought, man, uh, that's like four or five times what anything I did. Uh, and that he was able to do that. I always respected the heck out of him. Now, you know, in retrospect, you might not be coming up with new stuff everywhere because what's old in Raleigh, North Carolina might be brand new in Calgary. So, you know, you can right. you can use the same stuff in different places. That was before, all this was before the Internet and Google. Now you can't. People can fact check without getting out of their right. lazy boy. Well, you can go to YouTube so, and see, see the, uh, you know, see it being done. Oh, I right. saw this in such and such a territory. So, you know, right. it's a, like right. the ukulele thing. You know, nobody nobody in San Francisco saw the garden or vice versa. Maybe somebody somewhere with a satellite dish or something might have seen it. But 
outside of that, very few people. And there wasn't the internet to spread the word, like you said, either. So they had that going for them as well. Right, right. Yeah, I was able, you were able to keep, uh, I was a telephone, of course, and Russ was gossiping, but you were able to, you could do things in one place and not be assured that everybody in, in the other side of the country would know about it. So I'm looking, you know, you talk about how you changed everything up, but really the San Francisco territory, at least as of late, it wasn't very, it was personal on the level of I want your belt or you turned on me or things, the very basic wrestling feuds. It felt like what the territory was based on in this period that when you moved in here and you come in and guys are busting people over the head with ukuleles. And we've got this intricate story here with Kevin Sullivan, the backstory that took place, a very personal family based story that maybe somebody can relate to, to some degree, you know, they care for their, you know, their family members and they, they get behind Sullivan. They want him to get his revenge. He gets his revenge. Now he's being screwed, even though, you know, he was just doing what was right, you know, in the fans eyes. So right. it's it's great how deep the layers go. And we again, we're only like a month or so into this feud. We've got a long way to go, guys. So I'm going to leave it here this week, Bob. But okay. there was this guy by the name of Bob Roop, and he's now in an arm sling, and his shoulder's broken, and he can no, he's crippled, he claims. He can no longer wrestle thanks to Kevin Sullivan. He may never get back in the ring again. The fans aren't buying it. Neither is the announcer, Hank Renner. He doesn't look like he's buying it either. But... We'll have to wait and see now. Exit Bob Roop for the moment, but enter a new character, a new wrestler coming to the territory at the very same time under the mask. Uh, he wears red, white, and blue. Imagine that by the name of the Star Warrior. And we're going to talk all about the Star Warrior and everything else that goes on in this feud when we return next time here on the show. The Star Warrior. Man, I've never heard of that guy. Who who was that? I wonder. I, remember. I bet he didn't draw a dime. That's probably why. <laughs> I bet he lasted about a month. <laughs> well, you know, see, there was a way. If you talked about looking at my record, uh, my record, I lost a lot more matches than I won because bad guys lose, you know. I mean, not every time, but if you have bad guys winning all the time, you're not going to have fans want to come to watch that to the arena. So, you know, I lost the majority of my matches, but there's a way you can keep your heat and you can get beat like a drum and still they want to get you see you get beat some more. Because what you're saying is, look, you think I was beat? You all had your satisfaction? You're laughing? You think everything's great? Guess what? I'm back under this mask or wearing this slang. But More I'm back, you know, and yeah. You get a and, and, of heat. and you know it's pissing the crowd off because Sullivan oh, yeah. is getting revenge. Sullivan's doing it for his family. Sullivan's in, in the right side as far as the fans are concerned. And oh, he's, yeah. getting, he's getting the one. He's the one paying fines. And being threatened by by being suspended if he does something yep. again, and and then turn around and the same authority is clueless to the fact who this guy is under the hood. That's clearly someone we both know. So <laughs> the fans, I could see why the fans are just pissed off at Bob Roop, the Star Warrior, uh, the the authority, because everybody hates the authority anyway. So they're kind of heels without playing heels here. So it just works. Everything's against Kevin Sullivan, which just makes the fans want to be rooting root for him even more. Yeah, I'm curious about something, right? Yeah. I wonder if I wonder if us letting all the fans from that era that are still around and listening to this, I wonder letting them know that I had a hand. In fact, I was major party in planning all that stuff. 
Mike get me back some serious heat now saying, <laughs> you son of a bee. You know, was you that came up with all that crap? I'm going to kill you. <laughs> well, at least you've given ke- credit to Kevin as well. You guys work together. You know, that's uh, that's a big deal here because, you know, you weren't just, no, Kevin, we're doing it my way. This is the way it's going to be. You were like, well, give, no, me your, no. give me your ideas. Oh, these are great. Let's let's roll with this one. Well, maybe not this one, but let, yeah, let's do these two. And and I think that's what made it, you know, even better was you both had ideas. Kevin has, has always had some, you know, really good ideas. He's been yeah. a hell of a booker in his career as well. So, yeah. I, you know, I think that's what really played into this. People, when they hear, oh, a six-month feud, they probably groan. But wait until we tell the story here, and you tell me at any point where this feud, this six-month-long storyline, gets boring or, or dormant or, or anything of that nature. It doesn't. Every month, there's, a, there's, something, there's something else to add, another layer. And it's, it's so fun. I, I kind of got upset the way it ends, but I also read you know, Kevin's responses the way it ends, too. It has nothing to do with you. <laughs> but, man, the whole feud in general, just a master class. One of the best long-term feuds I've ever... I didn't witness it. I don't. I don't know how much of it's out there, if any. I know a little bit of it is. I, I've seen it, but in general, the whole thing together. What a what a masterclass piece of booking it was. Well, thank you, Ray. Appreciate it. But I, I guess Bob, that'll wrap us up this time out. And uh, when we return, we'll continue on with the San Francisco story. We're going to tell the rest of the story here between Bob Roop and uh, this Star Warrior character, Kevin Sullivan, obviously a big part of the angle as well. That's upcoming, and, and uh, we're, it's going to run all the way through the month of December, right before you guys both leave the territory. And then from there, after we move on from that feud and we look at some of the houses you guys drew, how, the gate is just, you thought 8150 was good, Bob. Wait till we see what you guys were drawing on the regular when this feud was on top, heading into the end of the summer all the way into, again, the month of December. So going to be very interesting talking about all of that, and we're also going to talk the fallout, what led to you leaving the San Francisco territory uh, very soon here on the show as well. So. Looking forward to all of that. What a fun time this week, just reliving more of this San Francisco run. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it was good memories. I, uh, a lot of faces I hadn't had, had in memory files for years came up to uh, walk past me. And, uh, yeah, it's nice. Thanks a lot. Well, I, I can't do it without you, literally. So, so I certainly well. appreciate your <laughs> memories. I can only read what fans recall, maybe something I read in a book or, you know, the random videos that thankfully still do exist that are out there from little portions of this run here in San Francisco. There's not a whole lot, but there is a little out there, but coupled that with, you know, your actual firsthand memories, that's, that's extremely helpful to tell this story. So I just, I appreciate you being here for the ride and looking forward to doing it again next week. Well, you, uh, you mentioned something there that actually is, should be predominant or preeminent, the fans, uh, you listening out there, Without you, we we wouldn't be here. Uh, Without an audience, we have nothing to say. You know, that thing about uh, if an acorn drops in the forest and there's nobody to hear it, doesn't make a sound. Well, if uh, there's no audience for what you're putting out there, I guess it's what you're doing is real. But does it have, let's put it this way, it has no value if nobody's interested in hearing it. So you're actually the biggest part of what we're doing i really really do appreciate you being here with us uh we'll be back we'll do this again next week we'll talk a whole lot more about this uh, fun run in 1977 san francisco and this wild feud that continues to go on between you kevin sullivan and not john sullivan but maybe another sullivan family member gonna be in the mix when we when we come back next time as well so gonna be yeah it's just gonna get bigger and bigger the story 
as, as we continue on. So looking forward to that and looking forward to talking to you again next week. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Bob Roop, you guys can follow Bob, friend him on facebook.com slash poor Bob Roop. Be sure to friend him there and say hello. Bob's looking forward to hearing from you. And don't forget, guys, in a couple weeks' time, ask Bob anything. Continue to send in those emails. Bob, I've got over more than two dozen already. Lots of great questions. I'll shoot them to you so you can kind of pre-plan and, and get an idea of some of the names that are being thrown at you, some of the memories you may have. Uh, but make sure you send those emails to wrestlecopia at gmail.com. That's wrestlecopia at gmail.com. Or DM me on my social media, guys. And the title, subject title line, please make it Ask Bob so I know what's coming at me there. And uh, I enjoy all the questions. They're going to be fun. And uh, when I share them with you, Bob, you'll probably get a kick out of some of them, too. Uh, everything from some of the stuff you were doing early in your career all the way down to the Maya Singh gimmick. So lots of different questions in there. I'm looking forward to it, Ray. As am I. And remember, guys, that's coming tentatively. I'm hoping you get that one out the week of Christmas. I think it would drop somewhere around December 20th. And maybe if we have a little bit left of San Francisco, we can pick it up the following week, uh, the final week of 2023. But Bob, just once again, an absolutely fantastic, fun time I've had. Thank you for allowing me to share in your memories and looking forward to doing this again next week. Well, thank you, Ray. Back at you. The same thing, man. Appreciate it. <laughs>